This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, and with me, Cam Ruslan, today, we have the returns of. She is, uh, she is, I'm looking it up down here. She's a playwright, writer, and translator. She is Adriana Nordin Manan. Hello. Hello. Great to have you here. Happy to be back. Great. Guest number two is a writer, researcher on art and architecture. She is Lim Shoyun. Hello. Hi, great to have you as well. I had to write all that down for the first time. <laughs> and our three topics this week are topic number one is embracing impermanence, question mark. Topic number two is an artist's duty. And finally, topic number three is Oppenheimer and the foundation of American anti-science, which is probably the most intellectual topic we've ever had. So <laughs> so uh, we start with embracing impermanence. Um, now, Shaoyun, you know who I'm about to talk about. Uh, he, Sri Lankan architect Jeffrey Bauer, probably the most influential Asian architect, certainly on Asian architecture. He really pioneered tropical architecture. He's a great architect. And um, he has a, he, well, he died about 20 years ago and he had a house in Sri Lanka, a fair way outside Colombo. And I visited it. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. The house is very simple, but the the gardens are just absolutely gorgeous. And when we were talking to the guide, the guide, you just turn up. There's no appointments. You turn up and you try and bang on the gate and somebody will come down and then they'll just show you around. It's very nice. <laughs> very nice. The guide was saying how um, Jeffrey Bauer wanted his house, this gorgeous house, which is on the pilgrimage trail for architects like Shaoyun. Mm-hmm. And he wanted his house to steadily degrade, to decompose, to not be maintained. Well, not, I mean, maintained, but not, not, no overhauls. If something big broke, it wouldn't be fixed. He had, for instance, a, a wind pump. It had broken. It wasn't going to get fixed. And, and we were saying, are you sure? I mean, this is like a heritage spot. This, we, for, everybody must keep this going. So, no, no, it's just going to eventually fall apart. And um, and I couldn't get my head around that. But at the same time, over time, I've begun to think, actually, why are we so addicted to the notion of architecture and houses and buildings lasting and cities lasting forever? They should decompose and disappear and be perhaps regularly destroyed and rebuilt. Um, Shaoyun, you, I mean, you, you want to make a career in architecture? What about building houses that dissolve instantly yeah. after 50 years? Yeah, so, I mean, this is... Not it's you know the fact that the idea this idea that buildings should last uh, is a relatively new idea actually, and it was only really made possible with the advent of concrete. Like Sicarno very famously, uh, when talking about the national monuments, spoke about concrete being the material for modernism that it could last over a thousand years, and this one thousand year horizon became this new horizon for time um, in this concrete age that we're in. But even in the 60s and 70s in Malaysia, we were talking about timber housing. And timber housing obviously has a very, very different lifeline uh, than the kind of like modern concrete houses that we live in today. Um, back then, even in even you know, as late as the 70s, people were talking about 30-year to 40-year homes being a very, very viable and a very, very kind of common thing that most people would not have had in the past. Um, by the 80s, however, you know, that kind of gets, gets phased out um, 
when we come into the Mahathir age of modernity and permanence. But, uh, but, permanence, but, but not necessarily great building practices. They don't, you know, they're supposed to last forever, but they don't last forever. So mm-hmm. we're, yeah. we're maintaining degrading housing stock. Uh, Adriana, can I ask you, as a playwright, then, how about plays that just evaporate after 50 years? I think that's a good idea. I think it's good. It's, um, I think it's healthy. Like, why not? You know, I mean, and I, and this made me think about actually something else that people often hear. It's not about buildings, but a conversation I've kind of like, you know, had, had my ear in now and then is the idea of like vanishing trades. Like, you know, for example, when you go to Penang, people are like, oh, this is so sad that no more this, this craftsperson or this trade, this artist, people don't do it anymore. Uh, and sometimes I wonder like, and, but then somebody once asked like, is that so bad? That means people have better jobs, like more secure employment options. Um, yeah. So I don't know that that's a question for me to ask. But then, I mean, another thing that I was thinking about, like, okay, so if buildings like stay forever and like we like keep them, or 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 if there's or like Jeffrey Bawa, for example, like his house, whatever it disappears, it decays and everything. I don't know. I could see it being like, I don't know, a Mima land. In, in in their popular imagination, they're like, let's go. Like we could have like uh, excavate and explore. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is about us that like, wanting to um, maybe memorialize things, get get a thrill out of discovery of things that are buried or something like that. But yeah, well, that, that, I mean that's one of the the perhaps myths about the Renaissance in uh, in Italy was that they they were these what twelfth century, thirteenth century Italians were finding remnants of ancient Rome. Uh, uh, old uh, marble statues, etc., and we're imagining what what came before and created something perhaps even better. Shaoyun, I think you're I, you're resistant to the idea that we're just going to like you build a building and we'll just come and smash it after fifty years. Oh no, I think it's from a kind of like academic standpoint. I think that sounds great. I'm like, yeah, smash up, like let's have something new. Um, and also, uh, aging infrastructure is one of the biggest reasons why, uh, biggest sources of carbon emissions from buildings these days. So that's also an environmental reason uh, mm-hmm. to knock things down. But that being said, that's also an environmental reason to not knock things down. Um, so, you know, I think it really comes down to weighing uh, in the sort of contemporary parlance, the costs and benefits uh, of each move. So no, I just think that it, um, Italians say or Europeans have it easy because they can just point to Rome and say that's me. I mean, it's nothing to do with them. They they didn't build Rome. Uh, that's me. That defines me. That describes who I am. And it's something that in in Asia say it, it can't really be done because there isn't that history of brick, concrete architecture. You can't a, a handful of people could point to say Borobudur or Angkor, but there's nothing here. And uh, and it gives, I think, Asians uh, an inferiority complex. Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing there is to sort of detach ourselves from what I think is quite a kind of Western way of thinking about uh, identity and history and place, right? Um, architectural remnants can take the form of oral traditions or even building traditions, right? So rather than a physical structure itself, a kind of set of rules of how would one would build, let's say, a traditional Malay house. Um, and the structure doesn't need to survive for the knowledge to. And, it, you know, I think that would be quite a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, 
Adriana, I mean, perhaps I'm being a bit of a philistine. Actually, I, I just suddenly thought a picture of me going of going over to Italy and smashing everything down. I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> no, I was, you know, what I was thinking, Cam, as you were talking about inferiority complex. My, my whole like, let's try and deconstruct the center and periphery. Little impulse was that buzzing, and I'm like, hey, okay, so if we Asians have an, I mean, it's let's say we accept this, right? If we have an inferiority complex against the Europeans. That's okay. We can like outsource our like having like uh, elevating ourselves and not feeling an inferiority complex to I don't know the Mexicans with their templo mayors and the pyramids and everything. The Guatemalans, the Egyptians, and everything like they have stuff that they can point at. So you know, like let's compare it to them. Are we like do we feel inferior to them? For example, I mean, I, I guess that was the question of like why Europe kind of stuff but also like yeah there's so many cultures with like all and 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 this is where I have to confess that I'm actually a fan of cities that have these sort of things like I really like Mexico City I really like Istanbul where you're just like oh this is like this glistening skyscraper like a skyline is not all that they were or all that they could be but again maybe that's me just being like la 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 uh me too social I, I, obligation kind of thing yeah, me too. I don't. I don't I'm not going to go over and smash, knock down Istanbul. <laughs> I, I do. I do. I think about say where my mother comes from in Wales, which was a mm. which once upon a time was a thriving mining community, mm. and now the, these towns and villages still exist, but there is no virtually no uh, economic activity happening in that area. And yet their impulse is to try to maintain those houses, maintain those villages, which ha- which serve no purpose. And I wonder why, you know, it would be nice if the jungle just took them over. No um, social housing purpose? Like it, like there are no people who need to live there? Yes, shelter? But, but I mean, but the work is, is far away from there. Ah, okay. Um, it used to be right there un- yeah. under their feet, literally under their feet, but now it's all gone. I um, know they can let artists move in. But that's just my, <laughs> that's my personal like yeah. <laughs> it just always happens whenever there's like a, a sort of like aging building or or something that no one else wants to live in. Mm. Government artists, yes, yeah. they can live in the place where no one else wants to be. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. okay with, the, with with the rats and poor insulation. I don't know. Yeah, they don't need <laughs> proper housing. They have art to survive. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of which, that takes us neatly then to topic number two, Adriana, which is an artist's duty. Yeah. So this is really, this provocation came from a few things, but the most recent one was last night, I caught uh, Imran Shafiq who, from the uh, ASK Dance Company, his solo Bharatanatyam show. And of course, like it was like, uh, during the 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 talk back session, the post show session, like it wasn't it wasn't lost on anybody the topic of like wow look at this uh, Malay dancer like you know exploring Bharatanatyam like from a different culture and and lingo in that sense. Um, and I remember it was very interesting. His response to one question was like, um, you know, I think it's very important for for artists to explore, continue exploring different forms. And he said, uh, if we don't do it, who will? And this is something I've heard as well from like like a friend who we were just chatting about writing and play for film uh, and and theater. Um, and I I wanted to question myself really because for me it's like yeah definitely if we don't do it who will? But also at the same time I'm thinking about like hmm are we positioning ourselves a bit too much as like societal saviors? Um, yeah, so that's really where it comes from. Hmm. Oh yeah, my instinct is to feel kind of to recoil. 
actually. Okay. <laughs> from from that, uh, Xiaoyun, do you do you have? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I don't know what maybe just throwing this word out there, but like, does it justify what some people would see as appropriation? Mm. Um, and does that even matter in our context in Malaysia? I have more questions than reactions. Yeah, you know the way I looked at it, and is that, and, and the way I understand, uh, like, like like how Imran was speaking about it yesterday, was also that whole idea of like within our context, right? I, and and this is again, uh, please tell me if I'm sounding like a broken record or something, but it's like, okay, we're poorly supported. We'll say the arts infrastructure is not really that great, uh, in Malaysia, or or, or we could use a lot of improvement. Um, and I guess it's like the artists. I don't know. Is it offering new about offering like new new narratives that are like not 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 what we're constantly fed from politicians or the media and all that stuff? So yeah, and then that made me quite wonder. Oh, I did my little my as my pre-show uh, prep. I I I googled some things, and there's the big quote of uh, Nina Simone about how artists must reflect their times. And then there was this other article where people were like, "No, you can't say that because some artists like paint futuristic landscapes." And then so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm curious about the recoiling cam, and I have a feeling that maybe, but no, actually, why should I speak over you? Carry on, cam. <laughs> I, I think that if we were French, or if uh, Malaysia had Malaysia had been a, mm-hmm. a French colony, then I think that we would be embracing what you're talking about. Uh, in French culture, the you know they embrace and the intellectual uh, coming as I do from the the Anglo-Saxon the British uh, experience. It, they are, you know, repulsed by that notion. Oh. I, I, I think that that it's, um, it is quite possible for an artist to be a fascist, and to mm. create stories which are deeply disgusting and fascistic. Uh, we've mm-hmm. seen that many times before. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's also quite possible for an artist to be really bad, but um, I, I think that perhaps from the equation is is lacking is the audience. Uh, yeah. it, it has to be two hands clapping. And if a, if a, if an artist in their own lifetime is unable to find an audience, then it means that, well, there's no audience for it, that they have failed to spark an interest in their work or the time is not yet right. Um, mm. And I think that if you have the, that kind of two hands suddenly clapping and they're finding each other, then it's a barometer of the times and, and it, it could it could be an expression. So I I don't it, it is just happenstance it's it's just mm-hmm. I mean you know I love the Beatles it just happened that the the Beatles suddenly hit the world as that moment that they did and and it, and, and lots of people started screaming uh, there were other people who didn't and they were just as good so um, I think that yes you could you could throw the the artist into the into the the mosh pit of society. <laughs> And if um, if it resonates, then you have something which is probably worth looking at. But a lot of artists are really bad. Hmm. I have a question now because where I'm hanging on to uh, from that camp is audience. Um, I don't know, Shaoyun. Like, do you think? What do you think about Cam's point about? Yeah, like you need to find resonance yeah. and have an audience to be an artist. So if an artist makes, if somebody makes art but doesn't have an audience, what does it make then? Huh. No, it's yeah, fine. you know, I think of sorry, sorry, yes. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think of some artists who are seen as before their time, right? Oh, who yeah. are really, really underappreciated um at the time at which they were practicing, but mm. 
you know, posthumously were discovered and kind of elevated to this position. Um, and of course, a lot of them were also female artists and talking specifically about like early 20th century European artists um, and the way in which art history has always tried to like bring them out and like, you know, take them out of the shadows and put them into the spotlight. But I feel like that's a very kind of capital A definition of art where, mm. you know, art is like a kind of, yeah, has this very valorized position within society. You know, the artist is a kind of like figure with, with responsibility. But I feel like we've, today at least, we see so many practices that just like don't really follow those molds. Um, I was speaking to this Penang-based artist, Fan Chon, a few weeks ago. And, you know, he told me that the point of his art is to mengataskan yang kampung and menggampungkan yang atas. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really comes from this ethic of like staying curious and staying critical of the world around him. And, you know, it, it kind of occurred to me that maybe art can be a personal position of relation to the world. Um, and if it finds an audience, great. Um, but sometimes it's handy for yourself. And I totally agree with you, Cam, that, that could, you could be a very fashionistic artist. Mm. But you are persuaded nonetheless, Adriana, by your own argument at the beginning. Um, I'm trying to not be someone who just nods without question. Yeah, because I'm definitely inclined to be like, oh yeah, an artist should reflect the times, an artist should speak out, an artist should offer different narratives. But then deep down, like also at the same time, therefore I don't want it to be, it's like this uh, this term I heard before, motherhood statement, where it's like, oh, all art is like for, for societal good, all art is like noble and has like good intentions, you know, debatable as those terms are. So yeah, I want to keep myself in check. But as my own work, um, I think it's also important to it's important to foreground the personal, lah, to take away that because yeah. I get ick, I get ick at the idea of like I'm a savior, like I am the voice for the voiceless. Oh my goodness, you know, like like just I just don't buy buy that at all. Um, so yeah, so it's turn, the personal journey is really important because. Yeah, I, th- I feel if you if you go into something and you're like, I want to get fame or like I want to do good for people. Um, I know I don't speak for everyone, but for me, I feel like that's that's easily defeated and that that can wear out really quick. It has to be about like what you want, what what it does within you and what you're seeking internally. That's my thought. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. Mm. And I think Vincent van Gogh would uh, probably agree with you too. The man <laughs> who famously couldn't sell a single painting in his own lifetime yeah but whose artwork now sells for millions uh, actually I have, I have a friend in london who does he's exactly like that and i can't i can't get my head around what he does all on his own he makes these incredibly intricate artwork and mm. he never shows it to anybody mm. and it takes months to achieve and he he's an artist isn't he Adriana? give him give him a call cam and ask him i don't know i feel like yeah he, i know yeah. he wouldn't call himself that i don't know mm, yeah yeah, is, but, he, yeah. is he an artist, Shoyun? He's an artist. Yeah, you know, anyone who has a sort of personal practice, I would consider an artist. But I think that is a very highly individual label to place upon yourself. Mm. Mm. Okay, so, um, well, thank you very much. And to all you mm-hmm. um, fascistic artists out there. <laughs> Watch out. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and and oh goodness! Well, speaking of which, in a moment we're going to return with uh, Oppenheimer and the foundation of American anti-science here on a bit of culture BFM eighty nine point nine. 
And we're back with myself uh, and Adriana Norden Manan and Lim Shaoyun. And now, Shaoyun, uh, you're going to dazzle us with the most intellectual topic we've ever had on this show, which is Oppenheimer and the Foundation of American Anti Science. Well, all of this came because I recently watched Oppenheimer. So I don't know how intellectual this is going to get. Um, but no spoilers, just history. Uh, so as we all know, Oppenheimer was the nuclear scientist who famously led the Los Alamos National Project, and you know, which created the atomic bomb, one of which was dropped in Hiroshima, the other one that was dropped in Nagasaki. Uh, so after World War II, however, his career kind of took a turn, um, and he lost his security clearance. And you know, this doesn't seem like a very big deal to all of us involved, but that also was the kind of first public discrediting of Oppenheimer and his post-World War II anti-nuclear views. So what, you know, my kind of takeaway from the movie, which I personally didn't really enjoy, to be honest, sorry, um, was that actually this is one of the sort of first major instances of a public shaming of an artist, uh, sorry, of an artist, of a scientist um, in post-World War II America. And the seeds of that anti-science movement, I think, is still very ripe in the American imagination today. Um, and you know, specifically, what the movie doesn't really talk about is that most of the scientists uh, who were at Los Alamos or who were kind of like occupying this public imagination, let's say like Albert Einstein, right, who was uh, Oppenheimer's contemporary, if not a generation earlier, they were Jewish oftentimes, um, and some of them were also German and were part of the kind of like Nazi regime. And what we see in America today is that, you know, there's obviously a very, very loud voice on the sort of right side of the political, political spectrum that is very anti-science, very anti-vax, um, health freedom movements, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's important for us to remember that there was also a very big anti-science movement on the left side of the political spectrum, right? Uh, with uh, people on the left side of the spectrum who were against eugenics which was seen as a science, right? Mm-hmm. In the kind of like time period of which we're speaking. So even today, uh, many sort of black and Latin American folk in the US are uh, skeptical of the kind of vaccination of vaccinations because of this history. Um, but what I thought, what I was thinking in my head when I watched the movie was that there is this sense that science is amoral, right? That it has no conscience. Um, and therefore, you know, scientists are people without conscience. And that's why when Oppenheimer said, uh, and now I am become death destroyer of worlds, it really rang such a big sort of, it rang so loudly, um, because all of a sudden you have this figure who understands, you know, what, what is, what his inventions would mean for so many lives. Um, and also, you know, in this sort of post Cold War moment, the Soviet Union really was the one that occupied the, uh, on this Cold War movement, that Soviet Union was the one that really occupied the position of science, right? Um, it was a scientific engineering country, right? And according to the linear time of like Marxist communism, right, science would be the toolkit with which the Soviet Union would march towards communism. Whereas the US really had to define itself against almost like Stakhanovite idea of USSR scientism. Um, and if we think of, obviously of like great American scientists in the 20th century, Oppenheimer is not the first person that comes to mind. Um, probably, let's say, I don't know, Alexander Graham Bell, right? Who is primarily known as not a scientist, but an inventor, 
right? Like mm. the invention is important well, rather than Einstein, the Einstein. Einstein would be, and Nikola Tesla, I think. I, I think of them before Bell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Einstein was only later on brought into yeah. the US, right? Like, you know, true, true blood American scientists. Um, yeah. So that's so, my sort of the proposition for you guys. So you're saying that it's, um, it's very in keeping with our times now. The uh, mm-hmm. the fable of uh, Oppenheimer, which the movie I don't I, I haven't seen it yet, but the movie didn't obviously go into the post war. His later it did years. not. Yeah. No, it did not. And really, sort of started it with this Oppenheimer, oh. um, which I thought was quite sad because there was so much to be uncovered that uh, the movie yeah. didn't go into. Yeah, uh, Adriana. I mean, obviously, just to put our cards on the table, the three of us all agree that the Earth is flat. Um, <laughs> So yeah. that's our starting point. Um, Adriana, are you, uh, you, you feeling that anti-science thing in the air? Um, I had two things, actually, that I was thinking about. And uh, the first was, uh, as Xiaoyun was speaking, I was like, is this why once I heard somebody speaking about media landscapes or in, in, in different countries, is it that in the US conspiracy theories are really big? So I don't know. I was just sort of like, wow, is that is that maybe one contributing factor? I mean, you know, the, the foundation of that, could there be like a, an anti-science inclination where which then uh, sprouts these like um, conspiracy theories? Then another thing I was wondering, um, and again, I don't know, it's just not really something that you can like necessarily trace specifically, but do you, I get the sense in the air, like anti-science, okay, so let's say, I don't know, anti-vax, for example, uh, I feel that people say that a lot of that is actually, actually does, is imported from countries like the US. And so I, you know, I just, sometimes I wonder, and is there any way to find out what's an organic, organic and anti-science uh, stance versus one that's imported? But I do wonder about it. And, and I, and my question then which is maybe beyond the scope of our show, is like, what's at stake? Like, who has this time and energy and resources to import these these, these things? Ideologies? Can we call it that? Yeah. Because hmm. you're, you're, you're an academic, not necessarily a scientist. <laughs> well, and you're, you're, you're about to go and be academic-y, aren't you? <laughs> um, which is not science, but I mean, the whole notion of academic rigor is hmm. it's scientific, really. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be, is it not? Um, iron out those uh, subjective uh, viewpoints. Uh, so you, you're you're on the same page as the likes of uh, the scientists who are being demonized, are you not? Yeah, I I think science as a kind of field of study is very different from my field of study, which is in humanities, uh, where this idea of truth in science. Uh, that some people think of as immutable is, of course, an agreed upon principle, right? Uh, these are principles that are uh, refuted and then tested and then experimented on and then agreed upon finally. And then like, the scientific community collectively takes the next step and the next step. And that's kind of how scientific truth is built. Whereas I think in the humanities, we're a lot more uh, expansive and kind of like free with how we think of as truth. Um, history, obviously, uh, is written by people in the present and is inflected with our ideas of, of how the world is now and the kind of future we want to, we want to prevent. So the, the, instabi- the sort of stability of science that we, I think, took for given for many, many years, I think, is, is not something that we ever take for granted in the humanities. 
which is what makes the humanities, I think, so particularly hard for many people to understand mm. and to come to terms with. Yeah, as a playwright, Adriana, what do you think? Uh, what do I think? Wow, wow, wow. No, I was, I was thinking uh, about, as you were speaking, Sharyan, I was thinking about if science, okay, it's one thing, I guess, the scientific method and the rigor, right? But then at the same time, I'm like, you can't say science is not open to, uh, I guess, wider manipulation. If you look at like where funding goes for research, like people know, right? I mean, two, 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 I guess two things that come to mind, like people say like, like, for example, women's health, for example, is deeply underfunded and people don't, the world doesn't really, the scientific community doesn't really know much about it and the medical community because of this funding that's put towards research. But then at the same time, another thing that I'm thinking about in terms of science and um, again, like stepping away from, like, from the conversation about scientific method per se, um, is that, I mean, if you look in like scientific research has has like has its hands in many really, really bad things, right? Like, for example, the developing birth control. Uh, I heard that was uh, I've read that they like targeted minority communities, uh, Puerto Rican women, for example, just to like test them out. And this happens to different communities of, of color um, in different countries. And again, maybe looking at it, having a U.S. centric view here. But I guess it's the same thing I feel about, I don't know, people say, let's say AI or stuff like that is like amoral. And, and I was like, no, I, I mean, because at the end of the day, it's humans who are developing it, right? And we have yeah. different ways to pull and tug at, at, at like power and privileges and oppression. Yeah. yeah. And there's also careers to think of. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, Oppenheimer, he knew what the end result was going to be. We're going to build a bomb. It's going to blow up an entire city. And he was mm. like, on board, count me in. Because, you know, yeah. it's, it's a career opportunity of a yeah. lifetime. Uh, but uh, Sharon, I, I, on my part, I'd just like to end with, when you were talking earlier um, about the anti-science in America, yeah, I, yeah, I see where you're coming from because if you think of the the space race uh, mm. and and putting a man on the moon, I mean that that was a, the the most public display of science in action, but it's kind of sold more as engineering, a story of engineering mm. as opposed to science, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Apollo thirteen, the the movie, is a movie about engineering problem solving, as opposed to a very boring movie about scientists just sitting around being sciencey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine um, that's a movie about Einstein and his like principles, right? It's like he's drawing on a chalkboard. Yeah, sitting down and thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it will be very riveting and fifteen hours in length. Yeah, yeah, because the whole the whole of science is just always just reduced to a montage scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. where inspiration, chalkboard, chalk, 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 pie sign. You know. Yeah. We can yeah. put a man on the moon. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, anti-science doesn't happen here in a bit of culture because the world is flat. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, but we move on now to the final part of the show, recommendations. We recommend something that we think might be of interest. And so I go first. And my recommendation is I went to a place just yesterday, which I thought was really good. It's uh, a univ- um, well, a college complex, college campus, Massa. M-A-H-S-A. And they've freed up quite a bit of the space and it has been taken over well by them. I mean, they've 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 uh, curated it. It's a shopping area called Kudai. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of really interesting little shops and uh places to eat. I mean, all your cupcake uh needs will be <laughs> sorted out there. Um 
and I was just really impressed by one the commitment by Massa to to make this happen. It's been happening for four years. I had mm-hmm. no idea, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a success, and it's a, it's a really attractive, fun place to go. Um, so that's my recommendation. Have you two been there? Do you know of this place? I yeah. know of it, but I've never been. Uh, sh- it's fun. I? I love it. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I really like to see. It's it's so encouraging to see uh, examples of um, sort of regeneration of uh, mm-hmm. reusing mm-hmm. spaces, and it's it's a nice building actually to begin with. So um, I, I don't know if I it's Massa Avenue, I think it's called. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, you haven't been there, but you know what it's called. Yeah. Well, you got to go. Sounds there. familiar. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so check it out. So um, Adriana, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is a play. It's called Mixtape for Mars, and it's happening this weekend. Or maybe it's already started. But yeah, it's definitely happening this weekend at Kong CKL. Um, it's by Perempuan Productions and Kong CKL, and it's directed by Tung Jit Yang, and it's written by Adi Wijaya Iskandar. So it's a locally written Malaysian play about youth, identity, belonging, and uh, a lot of music, apparently, is what I've heard. So you should go. I'm catching it this weekend. It, it, it It's set now? The music is uh, the music of now? It's the late nineties, yeah. Nah, oh, okay. few, yeah. few. <laughs> <Better> music. <laughs> in, yeah, in case it was gonna dissuade you, the yeah, contemporary yeah, yeah. <laughs> music scene element. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I'm sorry, where again? Um, Kong CKL on Old Klang Road, and yeah, I think you. It's called Mixtape, uh, for Maz M A Z. So it's a name. Um, tickets are on Cloud Joy, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, and or just you know. Google and find how Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But oh, 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 you, you might like to know that the 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 theater post, the show poster is inspired by definitely maybe album cover. I I really, really don't like Oasis. Oh if no. There's, no, if there's no one, did I say did I say definitely maybe I meant if, if whatever Justin Bieber's biggest act album. I'm allergic to, it is Oasis. I can't abide them. Really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. All the whole battling brothers rubbish. But yeah. don't hold it against the production. No, Ken. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do. Don't I be anti-science. No, like no. That. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I wouldn't do. That. I wouldn't do that. Um, okay. So, uh, Xiaoyun, what's your recommendation? Well, since we are in a time of Barbieheimer, since I've just spoken about Oppenheimer, I'm going to recommend that everyone go and watch Barbie. Oh. which is incredible. It's amazing. It's joyful. It's brilliant. The sets are beautiful and stunning. But what I didn't expect from the movie was that it was as much a portrait of like fragile masculinity um, and the ways in which men occupy the cultural universe as much as Barbie and its role in our imagination. So Barbie by Greta Gerwig, highly, highly, highly recommend. I love it. All right. Awesome. Um, are you uh, previously a Greta Gerwig fan? Have you seen? Yes, you seen I am a Ladybird, Little Women. I saw her in Francis Hall, which is directed by Noah Baumbach. Mm. Uh, I'm a big Greta Gerwig mumblecore fan. And uh, but Oppenheimer, thumbs down, is it? Or Oppenheimer, thumbs down. Oh, felt to me down. like Chris Nolan Oscar bait, which you know we don't need more of that. Mm, okay. Mm. Yeah. Adriana, have you seen have you seen either of uh, Oppenheimer or Barbie? No, but I definitely plan to. But I think I'm going to prioritize Barbie. I don't know how Oppenheimerish I'm feeling. I I'm 
Yeah, or I used to, I've been to Los Alamos. That's my little silly claim to fame and oh. tangential and totally main character syndrome. <laughs> but yeah, I've been there. So maybe I'll go and be like, oh, I remember the days I was there. Or maybe I won't. Um, but yeah, no, I'm in the mood for Barbie, I think. Yeah, yeah, pink. Yeah. Pink and fun and Ryan Gosling, like being vulnerable. Yeah, I'll be there. Love to I, see I, it. <laughs> I, I saw a little uh, post, somebody, a, a, a woman had, had written that it reminded her of how she'd been to an all girls school, which mm-hmm. taught her to be, uh, to feel empowered and capable mm-hmm. of anything. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, to enter the real workforce and be confronted by all this misogyny that she had no way of understanding how to deal with. <laughs> no I'll remember this and yeah. when I go watch it. Mm. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I, I look forward to it. And um, the music is really good. Not of the late '90s stock, but the music is really good. And oh, Oasis I, isn't there. Oh God, <laughs> yeah, no Oasis. No, you wouldn't put Oasis in Barbie. <laughs> you really wouldn't. You might put it in in Oppenheimer, but you wouldn't put it in Barbie. <laughs> um, well, that's really great. I I will be checking those out. And um, and uh, I'll, I'm going to run the name of the play play again. Mixtape, mixtape for Muzz. Mixtape for Mars. Okay, cool. Okay, well, thank you. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. And it only remains me now to thank Adriana Nordin Manan. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. And uh, Lim Shayun, who will be uh, hightailing out of here soon to continue her studies. Um, can, can we say? It's very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks she's, for having me. Yeah, she's off to MIT. I mean, yeah. that, that's the actual Massachusetts one, not the Mersing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you and good luck with that, by the way, Shaoyun. Thank you so much. And uh, and myself, Cam Ruslan. And so please join us next time for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.